if this is your first time, we're in a series titled Against the Tide, Against the Tide. Or say Against the Tide. Here's the whole um, premise of why we titled it Against the Tide. It's simply this, that culture is going to have you drift one way. Religion's going to have you drift one way. And then Jesus comes on the scene and goes against culture and religion and against everything that, that man has created and says, I have a new way. And he declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That if you follow me, you'll find freedom. If you follow me, you'll find life. If you follow me, you'll find restoration. If you follow me, all the things that hold in your heart. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He goes, if the hole in our heart cannot be filled from everything this world has to offer, maybe, just maybe, we weren't built for this world. We were built for a different kingdom. And so my prayer is today is, as we're in week three of Against the Tide, is that we would see what Paul writes to us. And God uses Paul to write scripture to the church today. And this book of Colossians, we're in chapter two, and Paul is in prison writing to a young church plant, and they are um, under attack by preference and philosophy. The preference is diet and days. We're going to see that diet and days, what people eat and drink, the type of festivals people celebrate, we're dividing people in culture. Another part we'll see is uh, we'll see uh, legalism. We're going to talk about that today. We see mysticism, and then we also see asceticism. Basically, uh, somebody who thinks a minimalist, that um, subtraction is how you get closer to Jesus. And my prayer today as we go through Scripture is that we would see a whole different truth that Jesus really is the answer, that rules aren't the answer, that legalism isn't the answer, that being focused on a festival or a diet isn't the answer, but Jesus is the answer, and when we follow him, he clears all that stuff up for us. Is this making sense? Uh, the best way I can put it is Paul is going to unpack in Colossians 2 that the most important thing is that Jesus is at the center. Now, church can be like a lot of things. I sometimes say church is like chicken. It just depends on how you like it. If you like barbecue chicken, if you like um, rotisserie chicken, uh, if you like um, deep fried chicken, whatever way you like, it's, it's still chicken. It's just done a little different. So you go to different churches and it's just a little different. Not bad, just different. And so the way I picture our church, I picture our church like a family room. And what I call it a family room is, in our house, we had a living room and a family room. Anybody else have a living room and a family room? You know exactly what I'm about to say then. The living room, you don't look at the living room, you don't touch the living room, you don't drink water in the living room. The living room has unspoken rules, like you sit down and somebody walks in and they start drinking soda, and you're like, oh, we don't drink soda in the living room. They're like, I didn't know, like, you don't know the unspoken rules of the living room? I hated the living room. Sometimes when my mom was gone, I'd play in the living room just because. And then the family room. Family room, you can drink what you want to drink. You can spill what you want to spill. And uh, it was just a little bit different. It was kind of like almost my mom surrendered it to the four kids in our family. And it just was like quarantine them to the family room. And so when I would come to church, I did not like going to the living room church. Where I'd walk in and be like, okay, hands up. Oh, no, hands, hands up bad. Okay, my bad. I'm so sorry. Okay, okay, um, okay so oh, wearing this is good and then wearing that is bad. And there are all these unspoken rules. And it, it was so confusing. It was so intimidating to come to church. And so this is your first time to church. Why don't you know something real quick? You in, the, you in the family room, okay? Go ahead and spill your coffee. Even though we're not allowed to have coffee in here, you can spill your coffee. We'll clean it up. You can wear what you want to wear when you come here. But the more and more that I fell in love with the Lord and I fell in love with scripture, here's what I found out about the family room and the living room. It's not about the room. It's about who's in the room. Is Jesus in the room? And that's what Paul's trying to say. Is some churches like having a more liturgical service where you walk in and it's like, ha, 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 ha. Man, if Jesus is there, all good. Do your thing. Do, do your thing. Do it the way that you feel that you, God's called you. It's open-handed. But man, Jesus better be there. Us here, we're going to be a family room church. We're going to come to church. It's not going to be the most polished thing. It's going to be a little messy because people are messy. But man, our goal is that Jesus is at the center, that he's in the room, that we're worshiping him in the room, that we're listening to him, that we're following him, not some man, not some method, but the, literally the master of all masters, the king of all kings, and his name is Jesus. Is this making sense? So I'm going to pray. And we're going to learn from, I think, one of the best chapters in all of the Bible. It's such a fun chapter to really unpack God's heart for us and really what knits the church and builds the church. So we bow your heads and we pray. God, I thank you for what you're doing at Mission Church. I thank you that parking ain't going to stop us. That parking lot can be full. We're still coming to church. Devil, not today. All right. Lord, we love you. Oh, we love you. And even as we go into this message, I, I pray that for people who have been to church for the last 30 years, that we would have maybe a new expectation today that there's fresh bread for us. 
that you're not done with us, that there's still things that you want to deposit into our heart. There's still new breakthroughs that you have in our life. And for the person who's brand new to church, that they would realize that you're bigger than any mistake they've ever had, that you're bigger than any hang-up that they're struggling with, that you've got fresh bread for them today. You've got fresh vision, fresh life. You've got breakthrough for them. Oh, Lord, break through today. Break through our, uh, just our own mind of uh, how we think of things, and may we think more like you and less like ourselves. Oh, Lord, we love you. We love you. Everybody said? Title of my message in this Against the Tide is titled, Trust the Process. Turn to your neighbor and say, Trust the Process. It's going to be an interactive message today. A lot of talking, okay? Trust the process. Now, when I was in downtown Walnut Creek, um, I just got told my fly is down. Thank you. That is so awkward. That is so awkward. That is so awkward. Hey, we in the family room. We in the family room. That's how you roll in the family room. In the very back, people are going like this. Security, security. Oh, it's me. These darn new jeans. I swear that just the zipper so, may, may happen again. Family room. Family room. Okay. Calibrate. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. It's a time of message. It's like, oh, my back's hot right now. I'm starting to get the back sweat. Okay. Oh, I'm just going to push through. Thank you. Yeah. To whoever, to whoever saved me, I say thank you. Thank you. Or saved everybody, whatever you want to look at it. Um, so trust the process is the top of my message. And I was walking downtown Walnut Creek one time, and there's this uh, fantastic um, hair salon uh, called Stem Salon. Shout out to Stem Salon. It's a phenomenal salon in downtown Walnut Creek. Uh, my wife's getting her hair done there actually this week. What? Um, and uh, they, on the wall there, they have uh, this in big, uh, like bright, bold letters, trust the process. And so I'm going to borrow their slogan uh, today and use it for the top of message. So um, stem salon, is that cool? Okay, sweet. Uh, trust the process. And it's going to make sense in just a second. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to learn today from the Word of God. Oh, this is from the Lord. Here we go. Here's what Paul says. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea. So right there, he's just even prefacing, this has happened to other churches. Other churches are being divided by similar things, similar philosophies, similar legalism. And so, so the church of Laodicea is struggling with similar things at this time. And for many other believers who have never met me personally, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. Everybody say love. Come on. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mystery, uh, mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Stop. Paul right there, just so thick. We could preach on this for the rest of the time, but I'm going to just give you kind of a synopsis. Paul is saying that love knits the body together, a.k.a. love unites the church. So love brings unity. Rules bring uniformity. Okay, Love will bring unity to the church, and rules will bring uniformity to the church. He goes on to say that Jesus will make the church rich and abundant and will make it bright. Post, uh, I want to show you a, a painting real quick. I think a lot of us would know this painting. Um, it is uh, Vincent Van Gogh, The Starry Night. And if you take a close look at this painting, when Vincent Van Gogh painted it, all the buildings are lit up except one building. And the building that isn't lit up is the church. Vincent Van Gogh's parents were pastors. When he first started his life, he had a fervor for Jesus, and he was a pastor for six months. And for six months, he had such a fervor that he literally would give all his belongings away to the miners, and he was preaching the gospel, comes back after six months, and his Protestant denomination told him, you don't speak well enough to be a pastor. We're taking your license away. You can't pastor anymore. And then his father stopped supporting him as a pastor. It's the last time he stepped foot in a church. And so Vincent Van Gogh walks away from the church, but he still has a zeal for God. One of his favorite quotes uh, he would say all the time was simply this, is religion may... Uh, uh, where is it at? Give me one second. Religion passes, but God remains. Religion will pass, but God remains. And again, look at this picture. And I believe what Van Gogh is trying to communicate, uh, and I don't want to speak on his behalf. I did a, a ton of studies on just his life this week because I was fascinated by it. But man, the church is not lit up, but every other place is lit up. And I believe that rules and preferences make the church a dark, uh, joyless, rebellious place. But the love of God and Jesus makes it a rich, bright place. And my heart is that when people 
Because you got to understand this. If you ask people about the church today, they would actually probably relate to this painting more than they actually would actually understanding what true church is and what true Jesus is. And in this series, what, I, what I'm trying to accomplish through God's word and what I believe God is trying to accomplish through his word is to teach the church for the church to be vital, to have, a, to have a brightness about it, to have a joy about it. Jesus has to be at the center. It brings unity to the church. It brings a joy to the church. Am I making sense this morning? Let's keep going. He goes, I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I'm far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. And now just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down uh, into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will go strong in truth and you were taught uh, in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. What Paul's unpacking very simple is that our journey with Jesus is a lifelong one. It's not just one decision. Every day we choose daily to follow God. This Nothing pauses in this world, if you've ever noticed it. No marriage is pushed on pause. No relationship with the Lord is pushed on pause. It's either growing, a.k.a. the tide is pushing it away, or it's, uh, it's dying because the tide's pushing away, or it's growing because you're growing closer and closer to the thing that you're supposed to be and who you're supposed to be with. Romans 12 says it best. I love how it unpacks just the daily life. I'm going to read from the message version. It says this in Romans 12, 1, 2. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you to take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture. Don't be so well-adjusted to the tide culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Say, so don't, don't, don't get so used to culture that you don't even realize what it's done to the way you think. It's done the way you love. It's done the way you respond to people. Don't let culture be this thing that you don't even question. Goes on to say, and I love it. Oh, it gets real good from here. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognizing what he wants from you. And what, what an amazing thing what Paul is even trying to communicate in Romans and in Colossians and what the Lord's trying to communicate is when you hang out with Jesus more and more, you'll start to realize what he wants from you. And what he wants from you and what he wants for you is freedom. What he wants from you is he wants devotion because when you're devoted to Jesus, what comes with following Jesus comes joy, peace, love, and abundant life. When we go through valleys, everybody's going to go through valleys. We're all going to go through suffering, but we go through suffering different. I even think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Jesus didn't remove him from the fire, but you know what he did? He went to the fire with them, and he danced with them. And so some of you are going through fire right now and saying, Jesus, why don't you remove the fire? And Jesus said, that's actually not my plan in this scenario. Actually, we're going to dance together, and we're going to walk through this fire together. So it goes on to say, basically, at the very end, it says, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops a well-formed maturity in you. So what Paul's saying is, every day you got to follow Jesus. And as you follow Jesus, what's going to happen is you're going to become less and less like culture, less and less like religion, and become more and more like your Savior. That's the goal. We're not trying to have a uniformity here where everybody looks like me, talks like me, dresses like me. It was even funny today. I showed up today, and I wore a sweater, jeans, and white tennies, and people complimented me the way I dressed. They're like, wow, you dressed up today. I was like, dang, the bar's that low, huh? <laughs> this is me dressing up. Wow, okay, I got to up my game. But then I go, yeah, I wore a T-shirt, and then I wore a Yeah, okay, you're right. Yeah, I did dress up today. You're welcome. But what I love about church is that when people come here, I don't want everybody to dress the same, talk the same, you know, like, uh, you know, saying the same slogans, like, how you doing, mighty man of God? If everybody said that, it would freak me out, you know? But what I do want is, oh, I want us to all love. I want it to be our highest goal, like it says in Corinthians. I want us to be people who put Jesus at the center of our life. These are all things that we should have a resemblance. It's, if I could put it this way, the church should have a family resemblance, but we shouldn't be clones, we should resemble, I mean, my, my nose is just like my dad's. Thanks a lot, Pops. It's one of my least favorite parts of my, my face. You know, everybody's like, I remember the first time somebody told me I had a big nose. This is how they said it. Did you know everybody at our work has big noses? I work here. <laughs> yeah, you got a big nose. This is brand new information. And for the rest of my life, I look in the mirror, I'm like, that is a pretty good sized nose. And then my dad has the same one, family resemblance. The gray hair is from my dad. Let's keep going. Okay, anyways. So uh, he goes on to say, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that you come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Human rules are going to feel like a trap. Oh, they're going to feel, they're just going to put, you come in and you learn all these human rules and you almost feel like you're living in a box. And who wants to live in a box? But the journey with Jesus, it's an adventure. 
It's a, it's a process. It's this walking through life and navigating and trusting in the Lord. Don't let somebody capture you by a philosophy. A philosophy is going to get you stuck in the wrong things, but following Jesus is actually going to set you free to follow the right things. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Basically, all he's unpacking, and you'll see this in Colossians 1 and 2, is the first two chapters of Colossians, we see that uh, it talks about the person of Jesus. And the last two chapters of Colossians talks about the principles of Jesus. So Colossians 1 talks about Jesus is supreme above all things. And then Colossians 2 talks about Jesus is sufficient. He's more than enough for everything. And so Paul's establishing, just even that context of that verse, is that Jesus is more than sufficient. There is fullness in him. You don't have to add anything to Jesus. You don't need to say, okay, Jesus, I get it. You did a good job, but I need to add this also to make it good. No, Jesus is sufficient. He's supreme and sufficient. Let's keep going. Let's go to 13. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of all the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Basically, he dunked on their head, okay? Made them a poster. Let's go. Uh, Don't let anyone condemn you uh, for what you eat or drink. There's the, the diet part. For not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. Stop. Eleanor Roosevelt simply said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And what Paul is saying is, don't let anybody judge you. Don't make them your journey, don't make them make your journey feel less than their journey. Because this is what they say no to and you don't say no to that. Or this is what they say yes to and you don't say yes to that. Don't let anybody be your judge. Don't let anybody be your God. Let God be your God because he's the ultimate judge. None of us are called to be judges. We're called to be witnesses. And at church, we look to somebody to sign off on something, but we shouldn't look for somebody. We should look to Jesus. Goes on to say, and it gets even better. For these rules are only shadows of reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Stop. For these rules are only shadows. So here's what he's saying with shadows and Christ. He's saying that the Old Testament, the law, was a shadow. It's, it's a part of it, but it's pointing to the real thing, Jesus. And so how silly would I look if my wife was out in the sun and she's standing there and the shadow's there and I'm talking to the shadow, I'm staring at the shadow, I'm trying to hug the shadow, I'm saying, you're a beautiful shadow. And then my wife's over here, she's like, why are you talking to the shadow? The shadow points to me, but you're worshiping the shadow. And what's happening is, is people are loving the law and wanting to add to the law and Paul's saying, stop looking at the law, Jesus is now here, he's the reality, worship Jesus. There's this uh, amazing story. It's actually really sad, but it was, he was an Olympian, and he was a sharpshooter. His name is Matthew Emmons. He's going to win his second um, gold medal in sharpshooting. And he's in the last part of his um, uh, competition, and he shoots at the target and hits a bullseye. And he thinks he's won. Problem is, he shot at the wrong target. And he didn't even get a bronze or silver. He got disqualified. And what Paul, that was actually a lot of reaction for a, <laughs> oh, no, is he Okay. Yeah, he's doing all right. He got a gold medal at least once, okay? Uh, that was amazing. Like, no, not Matthew. Um, love my church. Love you guys. Uh, so anyways, but he, he, he gets DQ'd. And what happens a lot, and what, this is what Paul's saying is, you're shooting at the wrong thing. You're aiming at the wrong thing. You think you're hitting a bullseye because you're focusing on the diet of don't eat this, don't eat that, don't drink this, don't drink that. Even talking about days, I mean, they were divided on days. And we still are to this day divided on days. If you celebrate Christmas, Puritans will be upset with you. They work on Christmas to actually protest it. There are people in the room right now that days divide, actually people maybe that you would hang out with. You're like, oh, my kid doesn't hang out with that kid. That kid celebrates Halloween. We don't celebrate Halloween. Halloween was birthed out of a Celtic kind of pagan holiday, and so can it be rejected? Can it be redeemed? Some families believe we can redeem it, and it can be a special thing. All good. We're not going to actually, that's not what we're going to actually build our staple on here at this church. We're not going to have like our public view on um, Halloween is. No. We're not going to do that. And so what Paul's saying is when you start to actually make church about days and diet, you're shooting at the wrong target. And you may be thinking, man, I got the gold medal today. God, I killed it. Everybody now doesn't celebrate Halloween because I told them not to. He's saying, you're pointing at the shadow. Point at Jesus. And trust the process that when people hang out with Jesus, this is where it gets good, when people hang out with Jesus, watch what Jesus does with their life. Jesus can make somebody way more holier than your rules can. Jesus can set people way more free than your rules can. I'll finish with this, and it's very simple. 
What killed Jesus? Was it Jewish people? There's a lot of Jewish people. Everybody's Jewish there. The Romans, of course, but it was rules. They were mad that Jesus broke their rules, their religious rules, and so they killed him. And so Paul is talking to the church. You know what's trying to kill the church again? Rules. Religion. So Jesus was killed by rule followers who didn't like that he wasn't following their rules. And then what happens in the church is that when rules creep in, it kills the same thing. It's the enemy of the church. So it goes on to say, and I love how I finish this, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the, of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it, as it grows, it God nourishes it. So here's what he says. I'm going to read that again. For he holds the whole body together. Who holds it together? Jesus or rules? Jesus. Grows it and nourishes it. Who grows it and nourishes it? Rules or Jesus? Jesus. It's a very simple practical. Great relationships are the healthiest thing you can have in your life, is what he's saying. And the greatest relationship you can have is with Jesus. I love Warren Wiersbe. He's one of my favorite commentators. He said this, a body functions through nourishment, not legislation. A body functions through nourishment, not legislation. Who can say to his stomach, start digesting, stop hurting? How foolish. Yet people think the Christian life personally and the church collectively can be made spiritual by carnal regulations and disciplines. The greatest gift you can give anyone is not the rules of Jesus, but introducing them to a relationship with Jesus. Let's keep going with this thought. What you feed yourself is the most important thing. What you're actually saying yes to. I, uh, I read a ton of studies, and John C. Maxwell talks about the circle of success. You read it. I mean, this is study after study. Basically, the people closest to you affect your health more than anything else. So your closest relationships will affect your emotional health, your financial health, your mental health, your spiritual health. And so what Paul is saying is who you allow around you and who you allow to speak in your life will affect you more than anything. It will nourish you or will malnourish you. It will set you free or will create bondage. This is a couple of things I found from a study that I was reading about just the people around you. Emotional health. How people speak to you will affect your day. It's that simple. How people speak to you are gonna, is going to affect your emotional health. And so if you're actually reading your word and you're actually hanging out with Jesus, he's going to speak life into you and you're going to read promises about your life. You're going to read actually great things that set you free. It's going to affect your emotional health. Being around believers that build you up with the the promises of Jesus instead of the rules of religion, it's going to affect your emotional health. Is this making sense? Let's keep going. It's going to affect your uh, uh, mental health. If you're ever around somebody who never challenges you to become better or talks about something that maybe makes your brain kind of uh, it's like a muscle. If you're never challenging yourself, am I actually living completely the way God called me to live? I love being around people who are smarter than I am. My goal in a room is never be the smartest guy. My goal is just never be the dumbest guy in the room. That's my goal. Because <laughs> if I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm not going to grow anymore. I always want people around me that is challenging my, my, my mental health. And then physical health. Affect your physical health. When I was in my first two years of community college, I worked at a gym, and everybody who was... Uh, my friends, we all worked at the gym together. And during that season of my life, I got down to 5% body fat. I had a six-pack. I was ripped. Just keeping it real. Then, you just let me have it. I had it for a season, you know what I'm saying? Then I moved down to L.A., and my uh, closest buddy, his name is T.D., shout out if T.D.'s watching this, love you, baby. Um, T.D.'s a pastor in Oklahoma. Uh, he loved Taco Bell. He didn't love the gym. And so, so the first six months of me in L.A., I gained like 20 pounds. And I thought I was a leader. I was like, I don't follow people. I, I make my own decisions. But who I was hanging out with was affecting my everyday life of what I was actually eating and how I was operating. And I remember looking at a picture of myself from back in the day, and I was, 20, I was only 20-something years old, and I was like, what's happened? And Taco Bell happened. And so, so I had three buddies at the time uh, um, when I was at Bible college, and all three of them were overweight. And I said, you know what, I, I, guys, let's work out. Let's just start working out together. So all four of us started working out. All of them lost 30-plus pounds. And today, they're still like fit. That, like, that was the beginning of their life, becoming physically, physically fit. You hang out with people who value physical fitness, you're going to actually start to become a little bit more fit. Because what they eat, you're going to be like, well, I'm not going to go to a different restaurant. If you want to go, go to lettuce and get a salad, we'll go, I guess. Um, thank you for being a good influence on my life. It's the same thing about your spiritual health. It's the same thing. If you're not going to be around people that actually encourage you to be around the Lord, encourage you to go to church, encourage you to be in small groups, 
you're not going to be the spiritual fit person that you're actually supposed to be. And that's what Paul's unpacking in this part of the scripture. And last but not least, he goes on to say, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Oof. So he goes on, and this is kind of fascinating. I'm just going to go down to verse 23. You're going to meet people's rules that actually seem pretty wise. That happens all the time in church. And I, I just want to, I want to read this, and we'll go into the, my three points. These rules may seem wise because they are, require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. This is when he's talking about asceticism. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Rules don't kill the passion of the flesh. Jesus kills the flesh. Okay? So here's what we're going to do today. I'm excited. We're going to look at legalism. We're going to look at mysticism, and we're going to look at asceticism. And we're going to talk about Tyler the legalist, Tyler the mysticist, and Tyler the minimalist. I got saved when I was 16 years old. So for 20 years, I've been following the Lord. In my first 10 years, I was what you could call uh, a very legalistic Christian. That is actually my proclivity. I am bent towards legalism. That's where I go as a person. And that's why I'm always fighting it with the truth of God and the love of God, because that's where I want to find my worth and find my success. But that's not what Scripture shows. And so I'm going to talk about different seasons of my life. These are real things that I went through, real things I experienced. These are real things that I, I had to process. And what always saved me from legalism, mysticism, and asceticism was a man named Jesus, my Savior. My first 10 years of following the Lord, I worried about what people, people drove, what people did, what people um, ate. I, I processed all those things. You know the last 10 years I've been focused on? Do people know the love of Jesus, and am I loving people like Jesus? It's the shift that happened because I fell in love with Jesus and I've become more like him and less like my legalistic self. So let's talk about Tyler the legalist. This is going to get really fun, okay? So we're going to talk about basically the aim, uh, kind of take, play on the illustration from the Olympic sharpshooter, is I'm going to share the aim of a legalist and then the aim of a follower of Jesus, okay? So the aim of a legalist is to make sure you don't uh, stray from safety. So it's usually bar birthed in the right heart, like, I just don't want people to get hurt. I don't want people to do the wrong thing. So, so you're aiming at trying to protect people, but what happens is it becomes a more of a prison cell than it becomes a blessing. But the aim of love is to compel us to pursue Jesus for the rest of our life. And when you pursue Jesus because you love him, oh, it's different. Rules without relationship is joyless and rebellious. When people are given rules of Jesus but they don't know him, they just follow him joylessly or they leave the church and they rebel from it because they don't know Jesus and they don't understand the heart of the rule, the heart of the law, if I could put it that way. So I'm going to look at um, four different things that you can basically, if you're a legalist today, I'm going to maybe offend you, um, but don't take yourself so serious, all right? Maybe you're off a little bit, you know what I'm saying? Maybe, maybe the book of Colossians is going to kind of straighten you out a little bit in a good way and have you follow Jesus instead of your legalistic mindset. So one of the first things that a legalist uh, does is legalists elevate their rules with God's rules. I almost feel like legalists uh, would have uh, what I would call first and second suggestions in their Bible. You know what I'm saying? Like in their word, they're like, um, excuse me. And they talk about their laws the same way they talk about God's laws. Like it's in the word of God. Like, well, in first and second suggestions, it, it says that we should never, ever post a picture of this or we should do this or watch this or do that. I'm like, where'd you find that? Well, it's what if this happens? This is, this is, this is what happens when somebody starts to go down the road of legalism. I, I even wrote this down just so you understand what I'm trying to say is it's almost like they say, God, you did a great job with the law. You hey, thumbs up. But I'm going to help you out now because we're in America and it's 2019. And I'm going to add a few rules to your law because people in America need more rules. And so that's what happens with the legalists. Like, it just kind of becomes a slippery slope. And so, so the first thing you do is you start to elevate your, your rules with your laws. Second thing that happens is legalists don't know how to distinguish principles and methods. Principles and methods. So here are principles. We're supposed to worship. We're supposed to read a word. We're supposed to not be drunk. We're supposed to um, honor our finances. Another principle is we're supposed to educate our kids. And so I'll get questions. These are just five hot topics. These are on worship. So the Bible says we're supposed to worship, closed-handed issue. How we worship, open-handed issue. Should we use an organ? Should we not use drums? Should we do three songs? Should we do two songs? Should we do four songs? But a legalist is going to slap scripture on everything. They're not going to use hermeneutics. They're not going to exegete it. They're going to say, trust me, this verse means you're supposed to do it this way. Uh, drums are evil, or you know, drums are supposed to be in it. There was tambourines that were clanging things together in Psalms. Do it or else. Organs are bad. This is what happens with legalists. Let's keep going. Bible translation. I get asked all the time, what's the, what's the best translation? What translation should I read? And I say, yes. <laughs> Bible translations to me are like pizza. Most of them are really good. They're not bad. There are some that are terrible, and I would stay away from them. And so when you are buying a Bible, I would ask your mentor, hey, what's a good Bible translation? 
But if they tell you, this is the holy anointed translation, and that one's Satan's translation. I didn't know Satan had a translation. That's fascinating. Um, (laughs) That's a dogmatic, legalistic view that you're trying to put what you think. You you became so smart, so enlightened, that, yeah, you know actually what translation is the best translation. Let's give you another one is alcohol. Alcohol is a big one. The Bible says very simply that we are not supposed to be drunk. I mean, in Timothy, Paul actually tells Timothy to drink alcohol for his tum-tum. He's like, Timothy, drink some, drink some alcohol. It's going to be good for your tummy, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes on to say, hey, for the leaders in the church, make sure they're not heavy drinkers. This is, and, and I mean, some people even go like, well, um, you know, I've heard even you know, Tyler the legalist, I was trying to find out, this, is, this was me. Well, uh, how do we even know that when Jesus turned the water into wine that it actually wasn't grape juice? I'm the one who sounded drunk at the time, okay? <laughs> what? Who goes down that road? It was wine, okay? Jesus turned water into wine, okay? So alcohol is, is, a, is, a, is a touchy subject. And we're going to unpack even how that happens. And then money. Man, I, I was in L.A., and there was a very famous pastor. I could say his name. You know who he'd be. And he was, um, started a movement where you basically had to become a minimalist. And if you made anything more than $65,000 a year, the spirit of manna was on your life. And so what happened is you get in this uniformity of a church where everybody in the church, because they've decided on these hot topics, what they do is they take five high topics, they all basically vote on them. Okay, what's the translation? We're the ESV church. We would never touch the NLT. You know, thought for thought, get it out of here, you know. Um, and then they talk about worship. Oh, this is how we worship. Okay, they vote on that. And then they vote on um, uh, what they think about alcohol. And what happens is you come to the church, if you don't believe in these five hot topics, you're not going to fit in. You can't wear the same uniform. That's uniformity. That's not unity. And so with money, what happens at some churches, they start to actually look at money as it's evil. No, money's not evil. It's amoral. It's not immoral. It's not bad. It's whatever actually the person whose hands it is stewards it. The Bible says about money simply this. Don't be arrogant about it. Don't be haughty, it says in Timothy. It says don't put your trust in it. That's what it says about money. It says money can be something that you have to discern because it can be a dangerous trap, but it's not evil. Actually, our flesh is what the problem is. It's not the money. Another one I hear people say is, should I put my kids in homeschool? Should I put my kids into Christian school? Or should I put my kids in public school? And my answer to that one also is yes. Educate your kids. What happens a lot is a lot of these things, all these hot topics are birthed out actually out of fear. Not out of praying from the Lord. It's, it's a fear of some, what if this happens and what if this happens? And I believe that if you feel like you're supposed to put your kid in uh, Christian school, great. So is homeschool your kid? Great. Public school, great. What we can't do is if you're somebody you meet, they're public schooling their kids and you're homeschooling, you're like, oh, do you know what they're teaching them in the public school? No. What if God is calling that family to have their kids in public school and they're going to be a light in that public school? Is that really, is your way the way? These are all slippery slopes of how legalism happens. This is Tyler the legalist, by the way. Let's keep going. These are all things that I've experienced. Next one is, uh, what happens with the legalist is you're no more for your struggle than you are about your savior. You're no more about your fears than your faith. So basically you warn people about your struggle, you shame them about your struggle, your struggle becomes your message. And what I simply wrote is, our Savior must become our message. Because what happens is when you talk to people like, money almost ruined my life, it could ruin your life. Alcohol almost ruined my life, it could ruin your life. Uh, Public school almost ruined my life, it could ruin your life. Instead of, Jesus changed my life. So your message is always about almost what ruined you instead of actually what saved you. I I grew up in a family where alcoholism was everywhere. I didn't want to touch that at all with a 10-foot pole. My wife grew up in an Italian family where she saw everybody just have a glass of wine, nobody get drunk for a whole life. And so she had a completely different view of alcohol when we first got married, and we had to process that together. And so what happens is, is my fear was shaping the way I saw everything instead of actually Jesus. This is one of my uh, more fun ones right here. Is, so how does it start? How does legalism start? Let's, let's, just, let's, um, let's process it. Let's say Tyler the legalist um, viewed alcohol as bad. So what I did for alcohol is I created guardrails for myself. My guardrails for alcohol was I wasn't going to go to a party where there was drinking. I wasn't going to drink alcohol. These are all things that were guardrails to protect myself. Is there anything wrong with these guardrails? I think we're great. I think they're great. That's biblical. We have personal guardrails. But what happens with legalism is then I felt so passionate about these guardrails that if anybody else is going to drink, you know what I try to do? I try to put my guardrails on their life too. So let's talk about a house again real quick. Let's go to a backyard. So, so let's think, I, I like to think that God's house has a big backyard. He likes to throw barbecues. That's what I like to picture. And so the law of God is the fence. And every good backyard, I think, has a good fence. You need a fence. And some other places really need fences. My buddy Drew lives in Florida, Lakeland, Florida. And they have a fence, and then they have this, like, screen thing over their pool. And when I first showed up, I was like, why would you need a fence, and why would you need a screen? Like, what's the big deal? 
until I saw alligators, until I saw bugs the size of my head and mosquitoes everywhere. I was like, I love this netting fence. I love it. I want to stay in it forever, you know? You swim in it, none of those things touch you because if you don't have a fence, you can show up and you can have an alligator in your pool. That's why we live here and not Florida. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? So the, the, the fence is good. It's good. It's God's law. God's law is a fence for us to protect us from things that would hurt us. But what happens is, is Tyler the legalist starts to create guardrails within the, well, what if, what if inside the fence, I know that we're allowed to have alcohol, but what if somebody drinks alcohol and they become an alcoholic? I'm building a new fence because alcohol can destroy everybody and I put a new fence in the backyard. There's two fences now. And I'm like, well, what if, what if, what if uh, when I was younger, I struggled with uh, um, you know, um, pornography, so I don't want TVs uh, in my bedroom or in the house because if TVs are in the house, they're bad. So, okay, what if, if other people watch TV, they could do the same thing. So I'm going to build another fence against TV because TV is bad. And so the backyard, you start to build fence after fence, guardrail after guardrail. And guess what the backyard is now? It's a prison. You can, how you, I'm good. So glad you came over to my house. Yeah, yeah. I was sorry about the 70 fences, but they're all for the what ifs, you know? What if this happens? What if this happens? And what if this happens? So now everybody's safe. Legalism tries to protect people. Legalism's purpose is never to protect. Jesus is actually our, our protector. And when people hang out with Jesus and they hang out with the right people that love Jesus, those things that you're worried about, they're going to get shot on sight. And if somebody does make a mistake, those people are going to be restored on site because that's what we do as a church. But legalists want every single fence on the planet inside their backyard, and they wonder why nobody wants to hang out with them. Can you? When you're a young person and you're falling with the Lord, we have to trust the process that we got to allow people to fall in love with the Lord. Because if we give them all the fences and all the guardrails before the love of Jesus, it does become joyless, and most of the time kids rebel. And they become rebellious because they have no idea why they're not supposed to listen to that song yet. I have a few. Here's, here's, I'll tell you the, my few sensitivities, my own guardrails. Ready? Here's one of them. Ready? Um, scary movies. I can't watch scary movies. Like a horror movie, I'm like, okay, what demon wrote this one? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, who thought of this? Like, you're watching this movie, like, whoever had this in their head, they needed to be, like, prayed for. Because it's like, how in the world are, like, we're going to write a movie about people in a cave, and they're going to come out, and da-da-da, and like, what the what? That's mine. Okay, if you watch scary movies, all good. You don't have the same bent as me that where I, I struggle with it. I'm good with it. It's my guardrail. You know, the one, another one of mine is, I can only listen to worship music. I, I can't listen to anything else. I, I grew up listening to Tupac. I grew up listening to every single rap song. And so I, that was all, all I listened to. And now when I listen to anything but worship music, it grieves my spirit. These are my guardrails. For some reason, it affects me. It's my own personal conviction. You know what doesn't bother me? Alcohol. I'll have a glass of wine. Don't leave the church. Come on now. I won't have a glass of beer because it's just gross. I'm like, ugh, how do people start to like this? I don't get it. I'm not going to try to like it, okay? I'm not going to push through the process. You know? People are like, if you keep drinking, you're going to love it. Why? 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 What, this, uh, yeah. And so, so, the, so I don't struggle with that. Like, because my family was alcoholic, I was afraid of alcohol. And I found out that I'm not my dad. I'm not the same person as my dad. I'm not the same person as my uncles. And so that doesn't actually bother me. Not like... Uh, like um, Violent movies don't bother me. I don't feel like in my spirit, like I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, it's ruining my, my, my mind and my heart. No, it doesn't. But if it does for you, build your guardrails. What happens is if we're in the church this size, you know, on an average Sunday, we'll have you know, a little over 500. And if we took everybody's guardrails, this church would suck. It'd be terrible. It'd be terrible. But what if we just took Jesus, trust the process, you ready for this? And we trusted that Jesus would peel the layers and sanctify people. And in the right season, you'll see them give up things you never thought they would give up. You'll see them walk away from things that were holding them back. You'll see them walk away from things that you're like, oh, you're praying for them because you knew it wasn't good for them. And when it actually is through the relationship of Jesus, there's freedom in it, there's victory in it, there's a testimony in it. Oh, trust the process that Jesus is going to do everything that you want your rules to do. Let's keep going. Tyler the legalist, last one, is somebody this is I used to think God's laws are for everyone and my rules are for everyone. And what I realized was simply this, is God's laws are for everyone and your rules are for you. God's fence is for everyone. 
but your preferences are for you. And this leads to my last point in legalists. Legalists end up having their preferences become their prejudice. Legalists end up having their preferences become their prejudices. You'll see this all the time. Don't hang out with that person that thinks this. Don't talk to that person. You'll see it, especially in politics. Politics is a hot button right now in church. You'll hear the Democrats say, just get rid of the Republicans. You'll hear the Republicans say, just get rid of the Democrats. You'll hear the Libertarians say, get rid of both the Democrats and the Republicans. And there's a prejudice against this thought process because the preference is this is what will fix the region. And so you have all these bents left and right. And what Paul is addressing in Colossians is do not let this divide the church. Let love unite the church and let that stuff just sort itself out. This is where it gets really good. You ready for this? Let's go for it. Legalistic people want to tell you what to do. Trust the process. Here we go. Love wants to tell you who you are. Let me say that again. Legalistic people want to tell you what to do. Love wants to tell you who you are. Love is his name, Jesus. Jesus is love. He comes up and he just simply tells people that they're forgiven, that they are loved, that there's a promise on their life. He speaks to the promise of who they are. But legalists just want to tell you what to do instead of actually talk about who you are and who you are in the love of Jesus. He looked throughout scripture, and this is just very simple, but let's look at the process. Talk about the trusted process. Jesus shows up on the scene, three years, he starts loving people. I mean, he just starts loving people. You know, they had rules for the lepers, Jesus had love for the lepers. Lepers, you stay out here. No, love says, get over here, lepers. He, uh, they had rules for the adulterers. Jesus had love for the adulterers. They say stone the adulterers. Jesus says, no, 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 I got love for the adulterers. Love restores adulterers. It goes, oh, you got, you got rules on the Sabbath? I let love operate for me on the Sabbath. You, want, you don't want somebody to be restored on the Sabbath? You made the, the rules bigger than the person? No, 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 I got love on the Sabbath. Oh, you got rules for the world? Well, guess what? Jesus says, I got love for the world. It's this amazing moment where Jesus says, okay, Pharisees are saying, we got this. We got all the rules to fix this region, Jesus. Back off. Our rules are going to fix it. And Jesus shows up and says, no, watch my love save it. So rules can try to fix a region or love can save a region. And Jesus says, watch three years. Watch me love people for three years. Watch how I finish my life loving people, dying for people, and watch what love did to a region. It changed the world. And so now for us, here's the big question. You ready? Are we trying to fix a region or are we trying to love a region? Are we trying to fix people, or are we trying to love people? And you can say, well, a rule is just so quick. It fixes it so fast. Well, it fixes it maybe for you. I'm not trying to change things from the outside in. I'm trying to change things from the inside out. When you start to love people, here's a marriage tip. Don't try to fix your spouse. Just love your spouse. Here's a, mar- here's a parenting tip. Don't try to fix your kid. Love your kid. Here's another uh, work tip. Don't try to fix your boss. Love your boss. Here's a boss tip. Don't try to fix your employee. Love your employee. And trust the process that love is bigger than the rule. Is this making sense? I simply wrote this down. It can happen in a sneaky way, legalism, where we find our righteousness in what we say no to instead of who we said yes to. Legalism is very sneaky. You start to find your righteousness in all the wise rules because it looks wise. And you look more righteous because you say no to these things. And that's how it gets sneaky. I want to to read this to you again. It can happen in a sneaky way where we find our righteousness in what we say no to instead of what we said yes to. Instead of who we said yes to. Love sets the legalist free. Trust the process of love. And love set me free. Nothing else set me free from legalism. I was legalistic. I thought if you drove a nice car, I used to judge people. Now I'm like, yo, get whatever car you want, but just take me for a ride in it. You know what I'm saying? You got a Tesla, let's go. I want to see that zero to 60 thing going. You know what I'm saying? I love, I love it. Uh, if you have a, a fun off-road car, I'm in. Let's do it, okay? Um, next one, Tyler the Mystic. Tyler the Mystic. We're going to make these two quick, and then I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Tyler the Mystic. And a mystic's aim is simply this. My aim is to get closer to God through my spiritual experiences. But spirituality doesn't get you closer to God. Jesus gets us closer to God. This type of movement looks more like clones than they do look like regular family. A mystic movement, and I just wrote a couple things, and I actually, I grew up in a very hyper-Pentecostal uh, uh, movement and some churches, and so these are things that I experienced in a mystic movement. Here's a couple things. They'll use words and phrases that no one else understands. So you walk in, they'll have all these words and phrases and, and things. I'm like, what, what, where, I didn't see that. I'm reading my Bible. Where did this come from? What's that, where'd that come from? Oh, you'll learn, you'll learn. Another thing, so, so what happens is um, they make it almost impossible for you to be in the group if you haven't become one of them yet. 
It's very hard to join the mystic group until you actually like become JV to varsity almost. I even, <laughs> there are denominations, maybe I was a part of a denomination, where if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't allowed to be a pastor. What? Like, where is that in the Bible? You know, there, there are denominations, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. What? Where is that in the Bible? That's where you take mysticism, that's where you take spirituality and you elevate it above the person of Jesus. It's not, you can't find that in scripture. And so what happens in mystic movements is people start to elevate spirituality actually over the, over the word of God and Jesus. If you start to talk a certain way, because here's the deal, whatever you hang out with is going to affect you. So you start becoming more like a mystic instead of more like Jesus. And no matter Jesus was, Jesus, Jesus walked on water. He just raised the dead. I mean, this, Jesus, Jesus did amazing things that you could say were mystical in a sense, that, that were spiritual, but you don't fall in love with what he did, you fall in actually with who he is. You become like him. Is this making sense? Another thing happens uh, with mystics is feelings and visions trump the truth of God. Feelings and visions trump the truth of God. It's just simply this, feelings have no intellect, I found out. But I, I, when I was in church, I wanted to have this spiritual experience. I wanted, my feelings were like my, more my, my gauge on how I'd operate and how I'd want to walk. And, and so I'd always like, oh, if I didn't feel it today, I wasn't close to God. And if I'm not feeling it, then, then am I really experiencing what God has for me? And so my feelings became my trump card. And then I would even come to church like, oh, I hope somebody has a word for me today. If nobody has a word for me today, then it's not really a great day because if I didn't get a word, then, then why did I even come to church? I came to church for a word instead of came to church for Jesus. I came to church for a feeling instead of actually obedience to worship my God. These are all things I went through as I started to navigate understanding the Holy Spirit in my life. I went on, I'll, I'll just keep it real. We're going to go hard to the pain on these. Here we go. I felt weird. Uh, here we go. I would feel something weird in a place, and I'd be like, oh, I feel something weird. There is sin in the room. Just so you know, there's always sin in the room. <laughs> I would have, like, I would feel something about somebody, like, oh, that person is bad. We're all bad. Like, I'm like, what, what is it? You know, and I'd even, I mean, if I'm being real, this, this, is, this is my journey, Tyler the Mystic. I know the word says to love that person. I know Jesus says to love them, to serve them. But my, 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 my feelings and my, my vision says actually to throw them out. And so what happens is the feeling and vision trumps actually what the word of God says how to deal with people. And Paul is saying, don't let mysticism. Amen. Come on, let's go. Um, <laughs> and then last but not least, this is just something I, I experienced when I was a, a part of a circle like that. Mystics are always trying to get to that next level. They're trying to climb that spiritual ladder. And this isn't even Christianity. This is like, you know, like enlightenment and everything. But there is a ladder in the Bible, by the way. You see it in Genesis. You see it in the gospel where basically the ladder is not us climbing it. It's Jesus coming down the ladder. You, you got to trust the process that Jesus is going to do everything he's supposed to do coming to you, not you climbing up the spiritual thing in your life. Sh should we uh, be spirit-filled? Yes. Should we um, allow the spirit to lead us? Of course. But what I'm saying is, is the spiritual gets elevated above Jesus, we're going to be off. Is this making sense? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to finish with Tyler the Minimalist. Tyler the Minimalist. So here's the deal. Uh, minimalist is simply the spirituality by subtraction. You'll find spirituality by subtraction in your life. Poverty theology. The less you have, the closer you are to God. Again, that's not actually how you get closer to God. Jesus is how you get close to God. And so you heard me talk about the church movement when I was in L.A. when that happened. But what happens with... Tyler the minimalist, and maybe you've been there too, is when I would mess up, I need to give myself a timeout. I would have to punish myself to make myself feel better. So the way that I would deal with my sin is I would punish myself with timeout or like just beat myself up and then I'd feel better. But the last time I've read the word, when we mess up, Jesus is actually what restores us and makes us whole, not us giving ourselves a timeout. I used to think that poverty was a sign of maturity. But the problem is, if you think poverty is your, uh, how you get close to God, the problem is there's another gospel that says prosperity. Prosperity gospel is how you get close to God. Neither get you close to God. It's not poverty or prosperity. It's Jesus. It's, am I saying we don't suffer? Yeah, we do suffer. But if suffering's your goal, like if you're always talking about, man, we just need to suffer for Jesus. We've got to suffer some more. Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> you missed it. You're, you're, you're trying to make the gospel about something. What if Jesus actually wants to bless you, give you a promotion, elevate you to a place like Joseph so you can actually impact a region? What if that's his plan for you? But you come in with a suffering ideology and he can't even do what he wants to do in your life because you're letting an ideology lead your steps instead of Jesus. I just want to close with this and we'll be on our way.
Vincent Van Gogh, I'm going to go back to him real quick. And this is a quote of his. There is nothing more truly artistic than to love people. He left the church, but he didn't leave God as what it shows. But I want you to hear this real quick. The greatest masterpiece is not going to be painted by rules. The greatest masterpiece is going to be painted by love. Nothing else. If you love rules more than you love Jesus, there's a problem. If you love spirituality more than you love Jesus, there's a problem. If you love suffering more than you love Jesus, there's a problem. But if you love Jesus and allow him to take care of everything else, watch what happens in your life, there's a solution. I've been processing babies a lot lately because we're gonna start trying to have a baby in June. Everybody said amen, what? Um, so June, not June 1st, like June 10th, so relax. But I've been processing babies a lot lately, okay? And so, just bear with me in this illustration. So picture a baby in the other room crying. What kind of father would I be if the baby was crying and I was like, somebody fix that baby. Fix that baby, crying, he's loud, he's annoying me, fix that baby. Well, what kind of father would I be? What if I was like, oh my gosh, that baby's so loud, shut the door. You know, I just shut the door and the baby's crying. This would be a terrible father. Can we agree with this? Yes. What is the baby crying for? There's usually three things why a baby cries. It wants to be fed, it wants to be held, or it wants to be changed because it made a messy. I'm already using daddy talk. You made a messy, okay? Now, what kind of Christians would we be, or what kind of church would we be, when a region starts to cry out, and we say, somebody fix this messed up region. Somebody fix those messed up people. Somebody fix what's going on out there. Or how we go this, you know what, oh, just get me away from this, gross people, shut the door on them, get them out of here. What kind of Christian would that be? Because here's the deal, we all are grown up big old babies. I'm just gonna keep it real. We just cry differently as we get older. But the things that we need are the same things when we were born as a baby. We wanna be held. We wanna be fed the love of Jesus. And we want this mess that we made, somebody to get it off of us. We're looking for somebody, we're crying out, I've got this mess on me and I want somebody to get off me because I can't do it myself. I need a father, I need an Abba father to change what is all over my life and to make me new again. And so they may not cry the way you like it, but just maybe you'll trust the process of love. Instead of fixing people, you'll love people. Like Tyler, I, I loved him last week and nothing happened. Love him some more. Trust the process. I've loved, I've, I've loved this region for a year, Tyler, and nothing's really happened. Love him some more. Trust the process. And just maybe if we just keep on loving people and keep on loving people and keep on loving people, oh, maybe a region will feel well-fed. Maybe a region will feel well-held by the, this thing called love, and maybe a region will feel changed and brand new because of love. Will you bow your heads?